Well, today we come to the sixth commandment, and I'm calling this message Devoted for Life. I have family in Florida. Becky and I went to college in Florida. If you've ever been through a hurricane or if you've ever been through a tornado, and we face both, you know how small and insignificant you can feel. When those winds come through and they're uprooting trees and you see pine needles that become like missiles that literally will stick into the side of a wood house, you realize the power. You see the flood that comes in after it, the, the storm surge. I've often thought about my, my family living on the coast of Florida. And I remember one time my sister and her family evacuated to, to Georgia and my brother-in-law stayed behind. He's in heaven now, but all through the storm, as the storm passed over their home, I talked with Gary, and I said, Gary, why aren't you leaving? And he says, because there are members of our church that can't get out of town, and they may need the church, and I'm going to stay. And what a tremendous man of God Gary was. He's in heaven now, and I miss him every day. He was my roommate in college, and just deeply miss him, but just such a great example of what it meant to be a man of God, selfless man of God. So when I think about this particular commandment, there's a lot of things that come to mind. There's things that come to mind like what must have Noah and his family felt like once that cataclysmic flood upon the earth that covered the mountains once it had receded and they were able finally to come out of the ark. Because the Bible says the first thing Noah did was he, he built an altar. Do you ever build a family altar? Do you ever build an altar in your home and just gather your family around to pray and to give God thanks for bringing you through the storm? And that's what he did. And the Bible says that the offering they made was, was pleasing to the Lord. God looked upon them and he smiled because of the offering they made. And I have to really restrain myself here because I'd love to go into all the details of it. But if you look at the end of Genesis chapter 8 and then the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, you'll see that God says some amazing things there. He says, never again will I curse the ground. Never again will God cause there to be such a cataclysmic change in the climate and the environment. He, he, he gives laws about protecting human life. He gives laws that even protect us from, from animals. And, and, and we'll get into some of that. But God just speaks this, this blessing. He says, even though every inclination of human beings' hearts are evil. We saw that evil manifested this week in Kansas City. Who would have ever dreamed, I guess it's not hard to think of in America anymore, that when 800,000 fans are gathered in Kansas City and they're celebrating the Chiefs win of the Super Bowl, that all of a sudden two miners pull out weapons that are able to spit out bullets as fast as they are, and there's a, a popular DJ and a mom and a wife that's, that's murdered. There's other people sent to the hospital. This is just become an all-too-common story. I pray over our high schools that our children go to that God would protect them. The sixth commandment, you must not murder, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, should really be a very simple commandment that we could all agree upon. I mean, think about it. You, shall, you must not murder. Can we say that together? 
you must not murder. And for those of you who still read, as I do sometimes, the King James Version, the word kill is not an accurate translation. It, the word is murder, and we'll get into that in this message as well. You see, what God was saying in Genesis, and you've heard me say over and over, the first three chapters, everything you find in the first three chapters of Genesis, you will find in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Genesis 1 through 3 is important. Genesis 8 and 9 are important. They're all important, but there are principles there. To attack a human being is to attack the image of God. To take the life of a human being is to take something that doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to God. The Bible clearly teaches us that all life is a gift from God. You are a gift to God to me, Tony. You are a gift to God to me, Dusty. We're all, and whether you want to believe it or not, and this sounds kind of braggadocious, but I'm a gift to God to you. We are gifts to one another. Look at your neighbor and say, you're such a great gift to me this morning. You see, your enemy, his life belongs to God. Your neighbor, their life belongs to God. You know, even people that go to the University of Alabama, they're a gift to God from us, even though folks from Georgia aren't real happy with them right now. You would think, again, it should be something so simple that everybody would agree upon, but everybody doesn't. So I have to ask myself this question, and these aren't the kind of questions I asked myself as a 13-year-old or a 17-year-old or even when I was 20 years old. I, but these are questions that have come to my mind through the years. Why is murder wrong? Think about that. Why is murder wrong? But that leads to another question when I sit there and I think about it. If murder is wrong, now just listen, because this may be a little bit of a shocking statement. If murder is wrong, and yet we've found so many ways to legally murder in our society, what makes my life worth saving? I've had over 40 major surgeries in my lifetime. I have cost dearly my parents, my own family that I've been raising, the insurance companies, people that have taken time to care. What makes my grandson Josiah's life worth saving? I mean, what, <coughs> why do I have a reason, or why does any disabled human being <coughs> have a reason to say that that life make society more valuable because on an Excel sheet or a spreadsheet, it would make economic sense to snuff out my life. It would make economic sense to snuff out the life of the disabled. And by snuffing out their life and freeing up more resources, according to many of the popular writers that even have to do not just with the ethics of life, but the ethics of climate, the ethics of taking care of our planet, the ethics of politics, the ethics of, ethics of health care, suddenly it has come that if there are certain people that we could do away with their lives, we're making the world a better and a healthier place. So the question comes, why is murder wrong? 
Murder is as old as the human story. The first sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, one brother slew another brother. And by the way, it was over jealousy and worship that he slew him. The oldest discovered corpse in the world is over 5,000 years old. It was found in the Italian Alps. And the thing about this, this corpse, when it was discovered, the body wasn't in a ceremonial grave where the body had been buried with respect, <clears throat> but the body of the man, and honey, would you bring me that bottle of water over there? The body of the man was a murder victim. He was shot in the back with an arrow. And so the oldest discovered corpse that we have, it's a murder victim. And murder has been a part of the fallen human nature ever since then. So it brings me back to the question, <coughs> why is murder wrong? Well, first of all, human life, your life, my life, not animal life, not your dog's life, and it's okay if you call yourself a a fur baby's mama, a fur baby's daddy. I don't get it, but if that makes you feel better, okay. But being a daddy to a human being is a whole lot cooler than being a fur baby's daddy. <laughs> if you're going to write any email about that, send it to Pastor Corey because I won't read it. <laughs> and I do get some strange email from time to time. Murder is wrong because your life and my life is made in the image of God. That means we're rational. That means we can be personal. That means we can be relational. That means we can reflect the image of God. We can reflect the holiness of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the shalom of the Lord. All because we're made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. We can know God. We can, we can talk to God. And, and God gives us another gift. We're able to envision the future. <clears throat> we're able to look ahead and see the future and to paint a picture of what kind of future we want for our marriage, for our home, for our careers, for our children. We're able to do that. Animals don't do that. So in trying to answer the question, let's first of all look at what the Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit, especially when you see people holding up signs saying, thou shalt not kill. That's not the correct translation of that Hebrew word. It's thou shalt not murder. The commandment doesn't prohibit the killing of animals for food. It doesn't prohibit capital punishment. It doesn't prohibit self-defense. And it doesn't prohibit war. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 3. Again, this is in the, where I was just talking about Noah. God says he'd given the animals. I've given them to you for food just as I have given you grain and vegetables. Pastor Corey told me one of his favorite scriptures was rise up, kill, and eat. <laughs> Capital punishment was not considered an attack on the image of God. Listen to me. This is important. Capital punishment was not considered an attack upon the image of God. In the Bible, 
it's a considered a defense of the image of God because you were created in the image of God. Human life is so very precious to our Heavenly Father that to take another human being's life meant they had to be punished severely. No one can pay for a human being's life. And in some cultures in the day that the Bible was written, and in some cultures still today, if you're a wealthy person and you kill someone that's not wealthy, you just simply pay a fine to their family for the taking of their life because you have enough to compensate society for their life. That was not true in God's eyes. You can never pay for a human life. Human life is in the image of God. It's the reason the Bible tells us in Romans 13, 4, that talking about soldiers, talking about police officers, talking about detectives, talking about, you know, agencies like the FBI, they are God's servants who punish criminals to show how angry God is. You see, this is actually a merciful law. The famous principle that you hear over and over on the news and it's said disdainfully or you hear it in television dramas is, oh yeah, I know, an eye for the eye, a tooth for a tooth. And it's always said so, so, so disdainfully, but do you not realize that was an act of mercy in those days? If you took out my eye, I was going to take out your family. If you took out my wife or my daughter, I was going to take out your tribe. If you took, knocked out my tooth, I was going to slaughter your livestock. The principle in Latin is known as lex talonius. It's, it's, it's the principle that's, that shows mercy. It says that the crime, the punishment must fit the crime. And it kept powerful people, it kept families from oppressing others that were innocent. The Bible doesn't prohibit self-defense. But the Bible is very careful in distinguishing how we defend ourselves. And by the way, before I get to this point, we really need to pray. I mean, it grieves me when I read of stories, and I was telling the board about this a couple of months ago, I think it was. It grieves me when I, I read stories in the news where DNA has exonerated somebody or they found the right person and so so we need to pray for our law enforcement agencies. They have all the tools they need to protect us as a society. The Bible doesn't prohibit self-defense. Look with me in Exodus chapter 22. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. Now notice that. He's caught in the act of breaking the house and struck and killed. The person's not guilty. But if it happens in the daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. A thief who is caught must, be pay, must pay in full for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his, for his theft. In other words, if someone had no choice, look at me, don't miss this. If someone had no choice but to defend themselves by killing the thief who had broke into their home, God says they're not guilty of murder. 
But if it happens in the daytime and you can see what's going on and you can work to prevent it or you see that the thief is not armed and you go ahead and you kill them anyway without calling 911 before they break into your home or when they break into your home, if it's a kid without a, a gut, we may not know that. There's all kinds of mitigating circumstances. But notice the detail of the law here. If it's in the daylight, if you can see, if you can observe what's going on, then you just don't cavalierly take a human life. You see, killing sometimes was necessary. And if it was necessary, it was necessary because a person had no choice but to defend themselves. It's why, and let me just sidetrack a little bit, because this, this commandment is so misunderstood. And remember, the Ten Commandments are getting given to enrich us and not to enslave us. So this commandment is a part of enriching our lives. The Bible had things to say like, put up a parapet around your, the roof of your house because in those hot climates, people would go up in the evening to enjoy the cool of the day for a meal. You saw that in The Chosen where Jesus and Nicodemus met on top of a roof and there was a parapet around it. That way, the owner of the house couldn't say, if, say, like if Andy was at my house and we were having coffee on top of the house in the evening and Andy fell off the roof and I didn't have a parapet there, I was guilty of manslaughter. Manslaughter says, I didn't mean to kill him, but I was responsible for killing him. And I preach funerals for manslaughter victims because people, through their carelessness, cause the life of another person to be taken. So these rules were meant to enrich our lives and to protect our friends and protect our neighbors. The Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit war. Peace is always the goal. Peace is always the goal, but sometimes it's necessary to defend peace. Can you say amen to that? Sometimes it is necessary to defend peace for people who want to take peace from you. And this is where my friends who are, are pacifists and people who, you know, just believe that, you know, no reason ever you should try to defend your family, defend your home, or defend, where we have such great disagreements because, well, let's look, first of all, at Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, where uh, John the Baptist is preaching, and the soldiers ask him, what should we do? And John the Baptist told them, no shakedowns, no blackmail, and be content with your rations. rations. In other words, the soldiers had the power to, to, to take from people more food. They had the power to take from them more things. It's what the British soldiers were doing in the United States, and that's why our Constitution prohibits, you know, the army from coming and taking over your home or soldiers from being bivouacked in your home. So he tells the soldiers, don't get out of the army. He's not telling them, quit the army. He's not telling them not to defend the nation. But he tells them, be honest soldiers. The Roman centurion, when Jesus spoke to the Roman centurion, the Son of God didn't say, don't be a soldier. Thank God for our military. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for them this morning for the way they have protected and defended our lives? So what does the commandment forbid? Why is murder wrong? The commandment forbids murder, first of all, because Satan was a murderer from the very beginning. Satan was a murderer. This is what Jesus said from the very beginning. <coughs> the influence upon Cain's life to slay his, slay his brother Abel 
the influence upon Lamech to slay a young man. Jesus says that the goal of the enemy is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So understand this, this rage, this anger, this plotting to take the life of people doesn't come from God, it comes from the wicked one. The commandment does forbid murder. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. I don't think anyone in their right mind or right heart or right attitude would ever rejoice at being given that responsibility for an injection or for pulling a lever or, or, or an execution by a firing squad. But when someone cowardly, cavalierly, cruelly takes the life of another human being, it's not just an attack upon society, it's an attack upon the image of God. You are more than an animal. And if you and I are nothing more than some goo that slid to the zoo and became you, then maybe we should live by the red law of the fang and the strongest survive. But we know better. We are created in the image of God, and we have a destiny for eternity. And no one can take that from us but God himself. This is one of the most difficult ones to address. It's a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Before it goes on the screen, look at me. It's a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And I'm not preaching pastoral theology. I'm not preaching how to care for people right now. I'm bringing you the truth of what the commandment means. If I had to apply this, I would come at this in a whole different way, but this is why I would be coming at it in a pastoral care way and applying this, and that's suicide. It's a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Job chapter 14 and verse 5, the Bible says, our time on earth is brief, and the number of our days is already decided by God. In my experience as a pastor, there's been no more painful topic, no more painful issue to deal with. And in this congregation, I've had to preach several suicide funerals through the years. I know the days they happened. I know the moments they happened. They come on my calendar every year, and I pray for the families. I still grieve. Sometimes it's been because of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Sometimes it's been because of, of health care issues. Sometimes it's been because of a deep depression that if I had not have worked in mental health, I would never understand how self-destructive that a deep clinical depression could make you. Sometimes it comes because of head injuries. I, there are a number of reasons that it could give you for that. Julie Gossick and I read in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, it's a, it's a journal written for people who do pastoral counseling and biblical counseling. Julie Gossett, back in 2006, wrote an amazing article. Five members of her family committed suicide. Imagine that. All at different times, but five members of her family committed suicide. This is a paragraph from that chapter, from that article in in biblical counseling. Suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. 
Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It's the truth. I dearly love my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful and not righteous. Does that mean they go to hell? No, it's not the unforgivable sin. People like Judas, who took his life in rebellion, rather than going to Jesus and repenting, Peter repented, was restored, and we have two epistles in the Bible by him, and he's the one that dictated the book of Mark to Mark as he wrote it. Judas, though, rebelled against God, rebelled against, he didn't want to be wrong, and he took his life. Jesus said he was the son of perdition. Without fail, I can say of those funerals that I preached from this congregation, of family, I knew the people. And I'm not preaching them into heaven. I'm just telling you they were struggling with issues and depressions and problems, health problems that led them to believe that somehow or another their families and their world would be better off without them. But hear my heart this morning. Again, this is not pastoral care preaching. This is truth. You do not help a person who is considering suicide by refusing to tell them that suicide is displeasing to God. Look at me online and here in this church this morning. Your life belongs to God. God loves you. God does not want you to take your life, and nor does your family want you to take your life. Sometimes just a loving conversation can help a person to come back to the sanity of their thought. Sometimes confronting them with the truth of God, it can jar them, jolt them, move them to a healthier way of thinking. One night at the house, I slipped down into the basement because one of our members who was struggling with suicide called me and said, Pastor, I can't go on. I can't go on. Wouldn't tell me where they were at. So all I could do was pray with them, counsel with them, call the police, call their family, alert them. Unfortunately, just saying, you know that this is sin. And you know that the author of sin is the evil one. He wants to take from you what God gave to you. And in taking from you what God gave to you, he strikes at God, he strikes at your family, he strikes at our church. You are loved. We're going to get through this. We're going to successfully get through this. I promise you, And it jarred him enough, and we got through it. And when I preached his funeral, the subject of suicide never came up because he died in the arms of Jesus. Now listen to me. None of us, according to Romans chapter 14 and verse 7, none of us lives to himself but to the Lord. None of us dies to himself but to the, can you put that scripture up for me? I'll start over again. None of us lives to himself, 
but to the Lord. I live to the Lord. You live to the Lord. Gary, you live to the Lord. And none of us dies to himself, but when we die, we die in Christ. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, read the last phrase with me, we belong to the Lord. Say it again. We belong to the Lord. Marilyn, you belong to the Lord. Jenny, you belong to the Lord. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, I belong to God. Say it with a little bit of pride and conviction in your voice. I belong to God. There you go, Trinity. I'm going to have you help me preach next time. When Becky and I were dating, before I ever asked her to marry me, we were sitting in Thomaston, Georgia, in the home of a minister friend that had invited us both over for dinner that night, and they were all talking, and I remember just sitting, I was awestruck. I was just awestruck. I can see it right now. But all of a sudden, it's like everybody turned down the volume on the television, and just as clear as a bell in my spirit, it wasn't audible voice, I heard this is my daughter. She belongs to me. It scared the snot out of me. <laughs> she belongs to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? You belong to God. Thirdly, this is another painful topic, euthanasia. It prohibits euthanasia. Assisted suicide laws continue to make headway in the United States and in the Western world at large. This, I can't tell you how much this infuriates me because some of these assisted suicide laws doesn't designate the kind of doctor that's supposed to do this or diagnose this. It doesn't require for family members to be called upon like I called upon the family members and the police to find and to help save this wonderful man. Sometimes, I'm going to tell you this, this has happened in this church, Sometimes a terminal diagnosis is wrong. A doctor will give you a terminal diagnosis and you're afraid of the pain or you're afraid of what the suffering would cause your family and those diagnoses can be wrong. But here's my question. You look at the teenagers in our church and when you see a school poster and I'm sure the teachers, you can talk about this, you know, telling a teenager, you know, don't consider suicide. Your life matters. If you're considering suicide, here's a number you can call. Here's someone you can call. What kind of message are we really sending to our teenagers when we tell them not to commit suicide, but we're sending a message to our older people, yes, go ahead and commit suicide and get out of the way. Does that make sense? Do you follow my logic there? You see, we're sending a mixed message here. Now, let me be honest, and I talked to a friend about this yesterday. If I ever come to a point in my life where the doctor says to me, you know, we, we can give you another six months, you know, it's going to be a painful six months, I may choose to terminate treatment, but I will not terminate my life. Do you understand the difference? There's a huge difference between the termination of treatment and the termination of your life. I don't want to live on a machine. I don't want a machine doing my living for me. I happen to think I do a pretty good job of living. I enjoy life. But if my life has to be sustained by a machine, then 
I'm going to terminate the treatment. I'm going to call my kids and my grandkids, and I'm going to lay my hands on them. I'm going to pray these prayers of blessings that I've written for them. I'm going to be praying over you. I'm going to go eat fried chicken every single day of my life, a banana pudding, until life on this earth ends. If I've only got six months, baby, I ain't worried about a Widowmaker. I want to eat fried chicken. Do you understand? There's a big, big difference. The life, Job chapter 12 and verse 10, the life of every living creature and the spirit in every human body are in his hands. And then the controversial one in our nation that's in the news every single day, abortion. Let me start with a quote because I've spoke about this so many times from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a great theologian that I've referred to often. A little lengthy, but follow along with me. As genetic science shows, the fetus is from the moment of conception a human being in process of arriving. The fact that for several months it cannot survive outside the womb does not affect its right to the same protection that other human beings merit. And that it will itself merit after birth. Abortion can only ever be justified and then only as a necessary evil when the pregnancy genuinely endangers the mother's life. And as doctors know, there are few such cases today. Legalizing abortions on social grounds is a social evil, whatever arguments of convenience are invoked. When I looked up the stats on abortion again for this message, well over 90% of the abortions in America are simply for the convenience that it's not a convenient time to be pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant or we don't want a baby. And I know that there are members of this congregation and people who go to this church who've had abortions. And I say this one more, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And you don't need to be beating yourself up and condemning yourself, but you do need to confess that to the Lord and receive his forgiveness so you don't carry around this guilt that God beat you up with. But we must understand that even the Bible protected the life of the unborn child. And just like murder, abortion has always been with us. Somebody sarcastically said to me when they saw my topic this week, says, you're never going to stop abortion. I may never stop abortion, but thankfully, Becky and I have been a part of helping other young women and older women not to have an abortion and bring that baby into this world. And if they didn't want to raise it, find parents who wanted to raise that child. And some of them have grown up in this church. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? <laughs> Psalms 139 and verse 16, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. If, look at this now, if that life is precious, then it must be precious to the church as well. And we just can't condemn mothers or say to mothers, don't do it. We've got to be able to come alongside with compassion and care and support and understanding and be willing to open our homes to these young women who are in difficulty. Amen? God gives us these laws to enrich us, not to enslave us. Well, let me wrap this up this morning. 
So the commandment, this is why murder is wrong. The commandment says every human life is sacred. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And then anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God, read it with me, God made human beings in his own image. Read it again. God made human beings in his own image. This is about defending the image of God and about protecting you. The commandment then reveals the mercy and the compassion of God. Pharaoh was not merciful and compassionate. Nebuchadnezzar was not merciful and compassionate. Alexander was not merciful and compassionate. Caesar was certainly not merciful and compassionate. Nimrod was not merciful and compassionate. Ahab was not merciful and compassionate. You're seeing the mercy and the compassion of God upon human beings. Now think about, think about what your life is and what your neighbor's life is. Now look at me. Think about what your neighbor's life is. This is from C.S. Lewis. I've read this to you before from Mere Christianity. God will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. Pulsating. I mean, imagine that. Pulsating all through and through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in all parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. John, look at me. You are a mirror. When I look at you, I see the image of God. Sitting right behind you, when I look at you, Kyra, you're radiating the image of God. And John, for Kyra, it's not been so, but for you, it's been a long and painful process. For me, it's been a long and painful process. Becky came out of the womb pulsating with joy. Here's my point. When I look at you, Sarah, when I look at you, Joe, when I look at you, I see the image and the glory of God. What do I see? Christ, Colossians 1.15, the visible image of the invisible God. Ephesians 4.22 calls us in, get rid of your old self, which, is, which made you live as you used to, the old self that was being destroyed by its deceitful desires. Your hearts and minds must be made completely new, and you must put on the new self, which is created in God's likeness and reveals itself in the true light that is upright and holy. So again, why is murder wrong? Because you're made in the image of God. You're rational, you're personal, you reflect the image of God, you experience God, you reveal His joy, His peace, His love, His kindness. You communicate with God. You are God's children. C.S. Lewis goes on to write, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential and glory hereafter. In other words, I can think too much of myself. But it is hardly possible for me to think too often or too deeply about that of my neighbor. Look at that. It's hardly possible. Dean, 
it's impossible for me to think too much about the glory of God that he has reserved for you and is being revealed in you. That's what Lewis is saying here. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. In other words, daily we should be praying for one another. Daily we should be serving one another. It should humble me to think about what God is going to do in day in Mike's life. And I should be serving and working towards that glory. Secondly, the commandment mercifully deals with the anger in my heart. Now look at me. Because Jesus, Jesus just kind of drills down on this when he's teaching. Remember the Beatitudes? He says, if we hate a brother, we've committed murder in our hearts. And who of us, your pastor included, hasn't been unrighteously angry? Your pastor included, who of us hasn't been unrighteously angry? Maybe some of you this week, you've been unrighteously angry. The way you exploded at your wife or your husband. The way you shouted over your children over the most insignificant thing. Maybe, as I'm often guilty of, somebody cut you off in traffic the words that come to your mind are anything but from heaven. They are authored in the pits of hell. It's like the little boy said to his mama, said, Mama, why aren't there any fools and idiots on the road when you're driving? They're always on the road when daddy's driving. This unrighteous anger. 1 John 3, 15 says, If anyone hates another brother or sister, they're really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. So just four ways to help you quickly. How do I deal with my anger? Confront it. Express my anger in an appropriate way. Contemplate it. Why am I so angry? Journal about it. Talk to someone about it. Confession. Ask God to help me with my anger. Ask my prayer partners to help me with my anger. And then finally, condemn it in my life. In other words, change my unrealistic expectation. I should not expect drivers in Detroit to be polite and to leave proper amount of distance between cars when they're switching lanes. I may hope they do, but I shouldn't expect it to, right? So change my unrealistic expectations. And then finally this morning, if you'll stand. The commandment reveals my need for a new relationship with God. All of you are God's children because of your faith in Christ Jesus. And when you were baptized, it was though you had put on Christ in the same way you would put on new clothes. I need a new relationship with God. I need a new relationship with other people in my life. I need a new relationship with myself. Years ago in my 20s, I spent a month with a theologian. And this is what we studied was the Ten Commandments for a whole month. And I remember he looked at me and he says, Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes. Paul teaches us in the book of Romans that we've all sinned. 
and fallen short of the glory of God. With passion, with tears, Paul says, we've all sinned. He said it means every one of us have broken this law. I may have never taken anybody's life, but I have felt the hatred. I have felt the unrighteous anger. I have felt it seethe and burn in my heart. And I felt it rob me. It was hatred that kept me from giving my heart to Jesus. So angry at God. So angry about life. And when I finally realized that God really did love me, Salvation not only gave me a new relationship with God, it gave me a new relationship with other people, but it also gave me a new relationship and understanding of myself. So this sixth commandment, it's one of the most important commandments in the Scripture because if you honor life, you honor God. If you honor life, you cast down your idols. If you honor life, you don't you don't take God's name in vain. If you honor life, you will rest in the judgment of God. If you honor life, you will bless your parents and take care of them for the rest of their days. If you honor life, you honor Jesus this morning. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for enriching our lives and giving us these truths. Lord, I pray that you will forgive me and you will forgive those in this church who right now would say, Lord, forgive me for any unrighteous anger in my heart, any hatred in my heart that would lead me into the evil one's path and trap to harm someone's reputation or to take their life. Finally, Lord, I pray that, God, you will free us from all sin and enrich our lives with the meat of your word and the wine of your Holy Spirit to refresh us. And Lord, if any here have not yet committed their lives to Jesus Christ, and that may be you online or you're here this morning, would you just right now say, Lord, thank you for giving me life. I didn't know it, but I belong to you, Lord. My life is a gift from you. And I accept the new life that Jesus gave me. And as much as I know how, I commit my life to him. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Now quickly, if you're hurting because of a past sin of abortion, if you're hurting because of a past contribution to euthanasia, if you're hurting because of someone's sin of suicide, if you're hurting this morning because of the loss of a family member by manslaughter or murder, would you receive this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ? Father, I raise my hands over this congregation and I pray for those who are watching online that the God of all grace, the God of infinite mercy and forgiveness, the God of all compassion would pour in 
the oil of the Holy Spirit to soothe and to heal. That you would drench us in the wine of the Holy Spirit to refresh us, O oh Lord, and invigorate us and give us life again. And open our blinded eyes that we might be lifting them up towards heaven today to see the face of God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, who smiles upon us and blesses us with his good favor as we leave this place healed and whole. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's give him a hand of praise today, would you?